This is a different parable than the parable of the talents. Jesus says, uh, teaches a very similar teaching literally next week. Uh, this here, it says, as he was drawing near to Jerusalem, that's talking about while he was entering that final week of his life. In fact, in verse 28, we have the triumphal entry. And so we're talking, he is just about to enter Jerusalem for the last week of his life, and he is teaching this. The lesson about the talents he teaches from the Mount of Olives during the last week of his life. And so it's interesting that during this last two weeks, if you will, two times Jesus teaches something very similar about how we handle what we have and we'll give an account for it at the end of our life. In this particular parable, it's about a harsh nobleman. And there are a handful of times that Jesus um, paralleled, or a better way to say it, contrasted himself with uh, somebody that was harsh. Not that God is harsh or that Jesus is harsh, but you remember um, he gives the analogy of the woman that prayed and, and was, and was uh, constantly berating this harsh judge. And eventually the judge said, give the woman what she wants. And Jesus said, so this is how you ought to pray. That's another example of one of the few times that Jesus gives a parable. And in the parable, the person's kind of harsh. And the reason behind this is to help the listeners, you and I, and those that were here, to have some type of reference point with something they would be familiar with. That in essence, if you think that a normal you know, farmer who's kind of a hard boss to work for, if you think he is going to be serious with you know, his workers about his stuff, how much more should you really anticipate God being serious with his servants. And so this is a parable here about this harsh nobleman who is expecting his servants to patiently and faithfully wait for his return. And while they are waiting, they are to be building his kingdom. Jesus gives us a little insight to the way that Jesus is treated when he said the man left and really the people didn't like the man. In fact, they didn't like him so much they sent a delegation after him to let him know we don't like you. The Lord Jesus has promised to return one day and there are a lot of people who do not want Jesus to rule over them. In fact, the opinion of many is that they don't want Jesus to return at all. Even in the church, it's a staggering number of people who are Christians that don't want Jesus to return at all. They are too wrapped up in their earthly life. They are not so convinced heaven's better than this. And when it's all said and done, they certainly want to go to heaven rather than hell, but they don't look forward to it. They want to push it off as long as possible. Jesus goes on in this parable in the end of it to explain that 
in the end, this wicked servant was slaughtered. And they're kind of, you know, staggered. His, his first thing is, take away the one that he has and give it to the one that has ten. In essence, here's what Jesus is teaching us. That those who have sent forward treasures in heaven, those who have used their life to advance the kingdom of God, they will be rewarded in heaven. But those who have not, even what earthly things they have held on to and gained, they're going to lose it all. It's going to be taken away from them. Jesus' parable here, like many of the parables that he gives, it has this twist at the end of it that's kind of surprising. The reality is this is the truth for the multitudes at the end of their life. There's a twist, and it's going to be really surprising. Jesus said in Matthew 7, in the end, many will come, right? Saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these good things? And he said, I will tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. You who live in sin. You who work iniquity. Who practice unrighteousness. Constantly, Jesus in his parables and in his teachings is warning us of coming to the end of our life, thinking everything is going to be okay, only to find out it was never okay to start with. In this parable of stewardship this morning, I want to share with you three eternity-impacting truths about stewardship. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that statement. Because there are things that we do in our Christian life that do not impact eternity. Not in any great significant way. Decisions that we just kind of are given to make on our, kind of on our own. But how we handle God's money... How we live as stewards, every time, every time, every time Jesus ever teaches on stewardship, it ends with what happens at the end of life and how it results in what happens after life. Every time we talk about stewardship, it is connected to eternal consequences, and so I want to share with you this morning three eternity-impacting truths about stewardship. Number one, God gives every servant in his kingdom gifts to manage. God gives every servant in his kingdom gifts to manage. If you are saved this morning, God has given you gifts to manage. Now, I want you to notice, not only here, but also in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents, that here the minas were given. They were not earned. They were given, and therefore, they belonged to the master. Now, you need to understand this morning, nobody gets to tell you how to spend the money you manage except the one to whom it belongs. 
It's his word that gives us the principles. It's his prompting of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian that we must listen to and yield to in our giving and in our how we spend and manage what money God has given us. And it's his kingdom that we are to be building, not our own. This is what stewardship is. I told you last week is kind of a funny word, that word stewardship. But this is what it is. It is the managing of that which belongs to God. And we will give an account for it in the end of our life. Now, because it's God's, consequently, he has the right to say what needs to be done with it. And what's fascinating, when we look at both the stories of here in Luke 19 and in Matthew chapter 25, he doesn't really tell them exactly what to do with it. It's their responsibility to figure that out. But he is expecting them to build his kingdom, to advance his kingdom with what he has given them. I want to talk about a handful of things in this first point that we are stewards of. Because it's not just about money. I tend to think of it in these three terms I always have, and it just kind of helps me because they all start with the letter T. But we are stewards of our time, our talents, and our treasures. First of all, our time. You know, we only have so much time. And it really comes down to how we spend it. Um, I've had uh, other pastors, friends, people of ministry at times ask, how do we do what we do? How are we as impactful as we have been? How do you run a podcast every single week and record a life group live every single Sunday and write your own sermons every single week and do what you do and still manage the church and spend time with your kids and be at all your son's events and how do you do it? Where do you find the time? Here's the truth. You and I have the exact same number of minutes a day. I don't have any more time than any other human on the earth. We all have the exact same amount of time in a day. It's how we manage it. And there are some ways that I, I want to, without giving laws here, right? We got to remember, and, I, and I, I pray that you will keep in, in mind and in your heart as I'm working through this sermon, what I just said, that God did not tell them exactly how to spend what he gave them. It was up to them, right? And so I'm going to give you some principles that will kind of help you as you're thinking, how, do I, how am I a steward of my time? I would put how we spend our time, how it needs to be spent, in four major categories. Number one, faith. There needs to be time built into your life that prioritizes God above everything else. Study of God's word, time and prayer, being active in the church body. You know, it's important to, to, uh, to be part of the body of Christ. It's important to, uh, for church attendance and those types of things. But it's not just filling a seat, right? That's not, God, we want to be members of the body of Christ. And when I look at my time that God has given me and that I'm going to give an account to God for, the question is, how am I managing my time in such a way that most glorifies God? 
So my faith needs to be considered in how I look at my time management. Next, I would say family comes second. There is no ministry more important than the ministry of your family. And there is no relationship in your life more important than the relationships with your family. And so you need to be investing in your spouse, investing in your children, investing in your family. There needs to be intentional time for that. Quality and quantity time. Next, personal growth. We have a responsibility to be growing. Paul kind of rebuked the church in Corinth when he said, y'all ought to be eating meat, but you're still drinking milk like babies. And there was, it was a rebuke, right? It, wasn't, it, was, it was not a joke. It was like, you should be growing up. And so we have this responsibility for uh, personal growth. We, and, and sometimes personal growth, it requires rest. It requires uh, finding a way to recharge and fuel yourself. I think personal care is it's not just spiritual. I think it's, it's whole-rounded, body, soul, and spirit. But there is a portion of our time that we need to be committed to our personal growth. And then fourth, community. This is going to be your friends. Um, time trying to reach the lost, being engaged at work, being engaged in you know, the world in which God has placed us. These are a handful of ideas when you start thinking about what does my time look like? And I want to ask the question, how much time have you wasted? Last year, as is the case of every year, except for those with a leap year, there were 8,760 hours. Now, just to kind of get a picture in your brain, just go with 8,800. A little easier number to remember. 8,800 hours last year. Now, on average, if you're in your bed, not necessarily sleeping, but bedtime for eight hours a night, plus 40 hours a week, some of you it might be much more than 40 hours a week, but if you're getting an average of eight hours of sleep and eight hours of work. You know that only leaves 3,800 hours left in a year. Last year, the average adult spent 864 hours on social media alone. That is almost a third of the available time they had left doing this. What would it look like this morning if you actually knew the number of hours you wasted with your life just last year? Would it change the way you live your life this week and in the month and in the years to come? Because I'm convinced we're not only going to give an account for how we manage money, we'll get to that in a minute, but we're going to give an account for how we manage the very life we have, the time that we have. Number two, we measure talents. These might be more well-known as the gifts of the Spirit, uh, Romans chapter 12, 
we all have gifts. We all have talents that God has given us. And Romans 12 teaches us that God might give one a special measure of this gift and one, God might give another a special measure of this gift. And basically, here's what Romans 12 says. It doesn't matter what your gift is, whatever it is, use it. That's what it says. So we all have different gifts. They're named in Romans, preaching, serving, those who have a heart just to serve, those who have a heart to teach, exhortation, those who have a heart to elevate and build people up, the gift of giving, uh, something what, while we are all called to do, there are those who are actually gifted with this ability to give above and beyond what would be average. The gift of leadership, the gift of mercy, these are some of the gifts that are lifted in Romans chapter 12. But the point is this, is that God has made all of us unique and he has gifted all of us differently. And we are all meant to take what we have and use it to glorify God and to build his kingdom. What would it look like if there was some way to measure the time we have wasted or opportunities we have missed to use the gift God gave us to further his kingdom? Next, we see treasures. Basically, money and possessions. Now, this one's a little easier to deal with because God has given us some specific instructions on how we are to handle the treasures that he's given us. A portion of the money that you manage is supposed to be used for the tithe. Look what Matthew 23, 23 says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Two things I want to point out about this text. Number one, there were a lot of things that the Old Testament saints used to tithe on. It wasn't just their you know, increase of their crops. They used to tithe on a lot of stuff. And when you actually look at the total amount of things they tithed on through the year, it gets to almost 30% of their overall income. But that word tithe, that literally means a tenth. And I want you to notice that while Jesus is rebuking these Pharisees, he's rebuking them because they do these things and then neglect the weightier matters of the law. But he said straight out, these you ought to have done. It's fascinating to me, those who try to argue that in a New Testament world, we're not supposed to pay our tithes. As if the things that Jesus taught are somehow null and void when he died. It's just nonsense. We don't do that with anything else, but we do it with the tithe. It's insane. It makes absolutely no sense. God has entrusted us with his wealth. He has given us talents and treasures and time to manage. And with the treasures, one of the things that he commands is that we tithe. Notice in Malachi 3.10, Bring the full tithe. I want you to just focus on those words. The full tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. 
and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Notice the tithe is brought to the storehouse. God also calls it my house. So the full tithe, the full 10% is meant to go to the local storehouse, your local church, for the furtherance of the ministry of the local church. No, you don't get to decide 3% of it goes here to my church and I'm 3% of it goes to my missions giving and 3% of it's going to go to, you know, uh, my sponsorship. That's not how it works. You're not God. You do not get to determine how God says the money needs spent. He determines it. He said the full tithe goes to the storehouse. Now, when we back up in verse 8 of Malachi chapter 3, you see this term, tithes and offerings. Offerings are above and beyond the tithe. Offerings are when we give to these other things I mentioned, but you cannot count your offerings and and somehow think, well, I don't have to pay my tithes because I've hit that 10% mark. The tithe is meant to, the full tithe is meant to come to the storehouse, God's house. Now, lots of people say, hey, they don't have money to give. But the problem might be that they don't make it a priority. If the giving doesn't happen first, the money will never be there. You'll find something to spend it on. This is why only 5% of adults have ever tithed. And of those who confess to be born again Christians, that number is still only 12%. Let that sink in. 12%. 12 out of 100 professing born-again Christians are tithers. This is a really big deal because we see Jesus actually ties it to the wicked servant who's thrown into the lake basically outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I would be super concerned if I was at 88%. Here's the truth about giving. Nobody gives accidentally. They're intentional about it. That means that they budget their money knowing the first portion is going to be tithed. If they have other offerings they want to give, like they think about it ahead of time. It's not, you don't just accidentally wake up and give. You've got to be intentional about it. Now, look at Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 10. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Many Christians know that first verse uh, of 5 and 6 about trusting the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. They know that. And, and brothers and sisters, that's got application to tons of stuff. But as we see, as we look at that verse in context, it certainly has application to honoring the Lord with your wealth. 
trusting God that, Lord, as I trust you and I'm obedient to you and I follow your instructions and your design for how you want me to manage what you've given me, you're going to take care of everything and it's always going to be better when I do it your way, God. Now, we're just talking about the 10%, right? So what about the other 90%? A portion above our tithe that should be used for offerings, right? We shouldn't have this mindset that, well, I finally hit my 10%. I don't have to give anything else. It's just the wrong thinking, man. Something's wrong with that if we're not excited about building the kingdom of God. But a portion of it, and I can't tell you what that portion is, and the Bible doesn't tell us what the portion is, a portion above the tithe needs to be used for offerings. Next, a portion needs to be used for saving for the future. Look what Proverbs 21 and 20 says. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Look, you can't have treasures and oil if you devour it all. Nor can you have it if you don't save it. I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this point this morning because I've got so much to get through. But there's really a lot the Bible says about saving. And, and being wise and preparing for the future and, and learning from the ant who prepares in the time of harvest so that there's food in time of need and that a wise man saves for his children and his children's children. There's, there, there's some wisdom in planning for the future, yet knowing we might die tomorrow. There's this balance of that, but a portion of what God asks us to manage, yes, we are supposed to save a portion of it and prepare for the future. A portion of it's for living. The Bible tells us that we don't have to worry, right, about being uh, clothed and how we're going to eat and that these are the things the Gentiles worry about. And Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But that doesn't mean that, you know, God's going to send clothes out of the sky and, you know, each morning you wake up and go in the backyard and find your clothes for the day. God provides those things for us through, believe it or not, most often work. That's why the Bible says the man who does not work should not eat. And so God provides for us through giving us opportunities to generate wealth. And so a portion, obviously, of what we manage is meant to be used for living. Don't forget, we have a good father we have a good father who loves us, who wants us to, you know, just, he, he wants to, you, you think about how you want to care for your kids and know the Bible teaches God wants to care for you more. Jesus gives us that analogy, which of you, if your children ask, you know, for something good, is going to turn around and give him something bad. You know, if your child's hungry, who's going to give him a stone? And then he says, if you, being evil humans, know how to do good to your own children, how much more does your heavenly father do good to his children? And so a portion of what we have, it is to be used just for living and taking care of our needs. I would submit, though, that once we have reasonably allotted for the portion that is needed for living, the portion that is needed for saving, that the rest needs to be used to advance God's kingdom. Isn't it fascinating that he has entrusted us with the care of his kingdom? Like he's, he's entrusted with 
us the responsibility to expand it. And then he's given us gifts to expand it. So the first eternal truth this morning, God gives every servant in his kingdom gifts to manage. Number two, God will reward those who use their gifts to advance his kingdom. So in verses 16 through 19 of our text, let's look at it, Luke 19, verses 16 through 19, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you will have authority over 10 cities. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. We get rewarded in eternity for what we do in this life. Do you remember uh, the very first week when we ran that string, right, throughout here to try to get a visual of just the never-ending nature of, of eternity and then how short our life was? God says, what you do in this short little life, you will be rewarded for it forever and ever and ever in eternity. How foolish would it be to just waste what we have in this life and not be rewarded for it forever? It just it doesn't even make sense. This is why when you begin to see this truth, it will absolutely change the way that you live your life. Jesus gives another parable to kind of um, look at this from another angle, how understanding that what we do on earth impacts our reward in heaven forever, that it'll change the way that you live. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, we see what we call the treasure principle. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Here's the analogy that Jesus has given. So a man found something fantastic, but it wasn't his yet. And so he went and sold everything he had in his joy to purchase what he wanted later. He said, this is what the kingdom of heaven's like. Those who realize there's treasure there, there's reward there. I ask the question, I want you to think about that great big line of, of, of your, your, your eternity. I want you to visualize it. I want you to visualize it. it's not just heaven, it's your life in heaven, your eternal life. How much have you sent forward there? What's waiting there for you? What have you done with your time, your talent, and your treasures that's waiting for you there? And how much is not waiting for you there? Because you've wasted it on your earthly life. Jesus says, you get a hold of this principle, it'll change your life. It'll change the way you live. Not only, like now, you'll do it with joy. Because there's this reality that not only do I get to invest it, and do I get to build the kingdom of God, and do I get to help people and serve people, I'm rewarded for it. In essence, I get it back forever and ever and ever in heaven. 
No wonder it's just Jesus uses the word foolish for us to live a life where we don't invest in the future of heaven. So God rewards us for advancing his kingdom. And what's wild about it is it's not even ours to begin with. He gave us the gifts. He gave us the wisdom. He gave us the talents. And then he's going to reward us for using them. It's awesome. The sad truth on the other side of the coin is that God will punish those who misuse or don't use their gifts. We saw that in verses 24 through 26. He says, take away the meaning from that man. There will be punishment. We will give an account for what we've done with what we've given. And that brings me to the third and final point. Stewardship is a matter of heaven and hell. This is no mere matter of like getting better rewards in heaven. This is not some mere matter of personal choices that don't really mean much. Stewardship is a matter of heaven and hell. Let's look quickly and finally at the um, story Jesus will give in a few days in Matthew chapter 25, verses 26 through 30. And let's look how this story ends, almost identical. Jesus is teaching, he says, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away. Now look at verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a matter of heaven and hell. Those with treasure in heaven, they're going to receive more. And those with none are going to lose even what earthly treasure they kept. Thus, Jesus is angry here with all those who have just sat on their abilities, who have just sat on their talents, who have just sat on the things that he gave them and did nothing with it to advance his kingdom. Now, I want to take this entire series and I want to like bring it to to a head. And if you have your Bibles, it'll help you'll, you'll be glad you brought them this morning. Go back to Matthew chapter 18. You realize Matthew 18 is where we started. In verse 18, we have the rich young ruler. I want you to see something that is happening here in the Word of God. The entire theme of Luke chapter 18 and 19 is that God offers salvation to all people. But very few receive it. 
In Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we're not going to read through this. It's not going to take, I don't have the time. But I want you to note, verses 1 through 8, we have the persistent widow. Here we have the picture of the woman who would not give up pleading for what she needed. And because she was faithful and diligent to seek the master, to seek the judge that could give her favor, she finds salvation. She's contrasted with those who are too quick to give up. And then in verses 9 through 14, we have the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee who says, God, I'm so grateful I don't need anything. So grateful I'm a holy and just man who does not need your mercy. And then there's the other who beats his chest. He won't even draw near to God, who beats his chest and says, God, I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And God said, the Pharisee is lost He's going to end up in hell, and that man who was willing to beat his chest and cry for mercy, he's the one who's going to go down justified. And then in verses 15 through 17, we have the wise adults versus the trusting child. The adult who thinks he does not need anything, again, contrasted with the child who is completely trusting. And Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you got to do it like a child. And then we have the rich young ruler. Verses 18 through 27, the man who had everything is lost and contrasted with those who have nothing being saved. We have blind Bartimaeus in chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. And we see this picture of he who has no need. He who refuses to ask for healing is lost. But the blind Bartimaeus, he who cries out and, and cries out for mercy, again, finds salvation. And then in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we have the story of Zacchaeus laying down his social status, humbling himself, giving away half of what he has. And we see that those who cling to their social status are lost. He who lays down his status is saved. And then we have the parable of the Minas. I told you at the beginning of this message, this isn't about or the sermon series, it's not about money, it's about heaven and hell. And Jesus gives many ways for us to know. How do we know that we're saved? Those who are lost will be without excuse. Jesus gave us many clear ways, many pictures. The commitment to stewardship is just one of them. Just one. Now here's the truth. Just because we are faithful as stewards doesn't mean we're saved. We're not saved because we're stewards. We become good stewards because we believe God, we trust God, and we obey God, and we do things according to his way. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There are many other times Jesus pointed, uh, for example, in Matthew 7, that the reason that these people were going to be cast away is because they lived, they practiced sin. And so there are a lot of different ways that Jesus gives us examples that to warn us. This is why he said in Luke chapter 18, where we started, is, is, is this is hard for a rich man to be saved as it is to take a camel and shove it through a little needle. It's just not possible. 
that man's going to have to lay down his riches. That man's going to have to acknowledge, all I have is yours, God, all of it. I can't take any of it with me. And so I need to invest it wisely to advance the kingdom. And, And the reality is that's just harder to do for a man that has a lot of wealth, a lot of possessions, a lot of things. It's just harder. Especially this man, right? The, uh, someone that's known and called the rich young ruler, that guy. Jesus says it's difficult. But in the end, here's what we see God is fair. He calls all of us to lay down all that we have, it's equal sacrifice. It's what's most important to you that God will say, This, you have to be willing to trust me with it all. This, whatever it is in your life, you've got to be able to trust me with all that you have, with all that you are. This is why Jesus says there's no rich men in heaven. This morning, I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would get in place and prepare for an invitation. I want to close with some personal um, thoughts that... Um, I've been burdened with for months, preparing for this sermon series, continue to be burdened with as I study it. I know this should go without saying, but I believe this book. I believe it. And one of the things I've really been burdened with is... the reality that because this is true... It's like my heart breaks. There are so many who don't live by it. That statistic that only 12% of those who confess to be born-again Christians have tithed. Yeah, they give something, but it's not tithing. Can you imagine? God says that part's his. Goes to the storehouse. Could you imagine like this morning if we were just to put up on the screen the dollar amount you stole from God last year? And you thought you were generous because you gave 3%. And I recognize this is true. This book's true. And I find myself burdened at the lack of commitment and seriousness of those who call themselves the church of God. This study has, for me, it's, it's like it has um, renewed a sense of the need to pursue holiness. The realization of how different we are as we're supposed to be, holy, different from the rest of the world. I've been burdened as I've looked at, it's not as if I wasn't conscious of the commercialization of the church. But I've been burdened in a new way, like, God, how do we as a people... Get back to living like these first century Christians did where we can't get 88% of people to even tithe. You read the book of Acts. They didn't just tithe. All that they had, they gave to the church. Like everybody had everything in common. There was no need amongst them. Now, I don't think that's going to happen again. It'd be awesome if it did. But I'm just telling you, when I look at the contrast, the attitude, the mind, the heartbeat of believers... Man, we want to believe that we are so deep and that we are spiritual and that we're right with God. 
while simultaneously wanting to do as little and give as little as we can. And we look for a church that's entertaining. We think of our Christian experience in the context of wanting to find somewhere that I can go and sit for an hour, hour and a half and leave feeling good or challenged or whatever. And it's just, there's a part of me that's been broken for the shallowness of what the church has become. I've asked myself my own questions. God, how can I, as a pastor, lead your people out and into something deeper? I'm going to close this morning reiterating it's not actually about money. It never was. Jesus just says this is one of those things, though, that's pretty easy indicator of where your heart really is. And if you really do trust me, and if you really are invested in my kingdom above all others, and if your life really belongs to me or not, it's a pretty easy indicator. So this morning, may we have openness to the Word of God to let what God says is an indicator be an indicator. Where do we stand this morning? How do we manage our time? How do we manage our talents, the gifts that God has given us? How are we using our abilities to advance His kingdom? And how are we managing our treasures, our properties, our money, our treasure? How are we managing them to build God's kingdom?